and welcome to the Marcus Cope Fitness Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Cope. Welcome back to another episode today. I'm thrilled to be joined by Professor Alan Pierce. He's a neurophysiologist who specializes in concussion. No doubt you will take away valuable points. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Marcus Co. Fitness Podcast, Dr. Alan Pierce. G'day. How you going? Not too bad. How are you? Oh, yeah, not too bad with uh, lockdown. Yeah. <laughs> Almost up. That's right. Yeah. How you been coping with it all at the moment? <clears throat> well, for me, it's not too bad because as a sort of a full-time research scientist, I've been... I can, I can do a lot of stuff from my home office anyway and I don't need to get out and about. So the only thing I'm missing, I guess, is getting in the lab and testing yep. people and doing stuff in, in the lab, but, but um, that's all right. It's given us some uh, other opportunities to get things done. That's exactly right. And I'm sure it's keeping you busy at the same time as well, which is good. Just want to start off with a bit of background on yourself. So a bit of experience and then um, obviously yeah. how you started as well. Okay. Um, well, I guess before I yeah give you a little bit of background, I, people may or may not know what I do, but and, yeah. and I think most people know I'm, I'm really doing stuff in the sports concussion space at the moment. By also, but I also have an interest in uh, the neural mechanisms of strength training as a yeah. secondary. So that bearing in mind, my background is that I, I was born in Perth and I grew up in Perth and. Uh, after I finished uh, high school, I sort of went and worked in a bank for three years and hated every single day of it. <laughs> uh, just just the fact that, you know, it was very structured and you yeah. did, there was just no opportunities to, to do what you want and all this. So I decided to go back to university. Yeah. And the reason why it took me a couple of years before I kind of found my space was, um, you know, I'm a little bit older than you and, and uh, back in the day, uh, there was no such thing as, I guess, you know, what I wanted to do at the time, which we couldn't even articulate, I guess, but it was exercise physiology. And um, I remember saying to my uh, career counsel at the time who had very thick Coke bottle glasses that I wanted to be something like what they were doing at the Australian Institute of Sport. And she's like, well, oh, you need to be a PE teacher then. And I'm like, mm, no, that's not not it for me. But... Um, what uh, what happened was that in Perth, uh, it was around nineteen early nineteen nineties yep. that they started a biomedical degree with an exercise science major. So finally, was able to do something that I was actually interested in. And during that time, um, I I got sort of didn't really again still didn't really know where I was going with this. But then in third year, there was a, a unit called skill acquisition, which you know sounded all right, but what really sort of turned the light switch on for me was this guy was talking about how people become experts or, or, you know, what makes an elite athlete an elite athlete. And it started to bring in some of the aspects of the brain. And I'm, even though the poor lecturer didn't have any evidence for neuroscience, it was all based around psychology. Um, For me, it was, Oh, here's a, here's a light bulb moment. And from there, I kind of got really interested in trying to work out what was happening in the brain. So Um, that's where my sort of directions went into. And then I did a, an honours year, a fourth year honours year. Um, and, and that was introduced, that introduced me a new technique 
at the time called transcranial magnetic stimulation where we could actually zap the brain and get a response and that was just this amazing like yeah. oh you didn't realize you could do this sort of stuff this is this is incredible yeah um and so from there you know, I was sort of hooked on trying to, you know, get into this uh, understanding about the brain more. And so I then did my PhD at uh, University of Western Australia, yep. um, the Department of Medicine there, and trying to look at, you know, how the brain changed with stuff. Because back in those days, there was no such thing as neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was one of the sort of the we were one of the first groups around the world looking at how the brain changed with practice, how the brain changed with injury. Um, So the next light bulb for me was one of the, uh, what we call postdoc fellows. So she'd already done a PhD and was her first job out of PhD school. And she was trying to look at, at how people recovered from stroke. And what we were finding was that people who were actually doing exercise and, and trying to rehabilitate themselves because they had no, no direction from the doctors or physios because, again, at that time there was no information about. Mm-hmm. We, we were seeing all sorts of changes in the brain as a result of that. And yeah. for me that was the, the next sort of direction changes. Okay, I want to I look at brain injury and, and see what, what uh, brain injury is and, and yeah. how, it, how it sort of um, manifests and, and, and what, what happens in the brain when you do get it you know, when it does get injured. Yeah. So yeah. for me, that was the kind of the, the, the foray into where I am now because yeah. uh, with my colleague, who was actually my ex-PhD student, Dawson Kidgel at Monash, you know, we try and look at strength training yeah. to help people with rehabilitation and mm-hmm. not just stroke, but Parkinson's disease and, and, and other neuromuscular diseases as well. No, that's really good. Um, going on from that, from your honours, I suppose with the findings of the, like, delayed onset muscle as well. Um, what were the findings of that? Yeah, that's, uh, it's amazing that, uh, what, 25 years later, I'm still talking about my honours thesis. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so if anyone out there thinks that, you know, when you've finished a project, in that's it, done and dusted. Yeah. No. Nah. Um, yeah, so that was my fourth year honours year. And that's, yeah. you know, I wanted to do something, again, with the neurological system. So, uh what happened was that uh, I, I sort of uh, was offered a project to look at DOMS, yeah. uh, but the opportunity was to use this newfangled device called TMS to mm-hmm. to look at maybe, you know, what, what's the central nervous system response to delayed onset muscle soreness. So while we, we obviously looked at all the obvious things like, um, you know, strength and force production and, um, you know, creatine kinase release and, and all this sort of stuff, uh, the, the novel aspect was, well, what's happening in the central nervous system, you know, while the muscle is not working that well, what, what, what do people, you know, how do people um, move effectively? Yeah. And, and, yeah. Um, and it wasn't looking at any treatments or anything like that. It was just like, well, what, what's going on? So the two yeah. aspects of it that were novel was one, I did a, uh, use the TMS to look at the changes in yeah. the central nervous system. Yeah. The two was to um, basically see how well they did at a skill Activity and it was a very simple flexion and extension yeah. movement task that they had to, um, uh, you know, sort of track against a computer mm-hmm. program. Mm-hmm. And I guess what we found were, were two things. One is that when when the muscle is damaged to the point where it's obviously affecting movement, the brain has to try and compensate. And how it compensates is that it, it increased its excitability to try and drive 
I guess, increased impulses to the muscle to overcome the loss in force. So we decided to see, you know, very quickly that the brain doesn't just sort of go, oh, well, it's injured. I'm not going to do anything. It actually goes, I've got to try and overcome this this deficit. And the second part was that we found that people were just in a very simple extension and inflection task couldn't do it properly because the the mechan the, I guess the contractile mechanisms in the muscle were were damaged. So there was a lot of overshooting and and undershooting um, of of the task. That meant obviously that there was a greater error. Yeah. And so one of the things that came out of it was if if you are I guess if you're prescribing exercise in terms of uh, you know obviously a, a heavy eccentric component yeah. uh, in your training then at that time, and I guess maybe even now a little bit still, people want to go, oh, we've had a big session yesterday. You've probably got a bit of DOMS. Let's do a skill session. Let's just do some skills. Yeah, this is interesting. What's that, sorry? Yeah, this is interesting that they talk about. I'm not interested in this. Yeah, because what what it showed was that's probably the worst thing you can do because you're going to reinforce poor motor pattern. Yeah, yeah. If If you're actually doing something while the while the muscles are damaged because yeah. then you know, the brain's going to start feedback you know some poor motor patterns and so that's the last thing you should do what you, what we think you should do basically is something yeah. low skilled low force just to try and flush out ck and, and yeah. try and help with the recovery process rather than using that as a you know skill training session as do you a, as find a more, like more people now would do that still well, I haven't noticed. I haven't really. Yeah, it'd be nice to look at and see yeah. what, because we, I did, I have followed up a, a few studies um, yeah. since that original work in uh, what well, was ninety four. That's how yeah. old it is. So in two thousand and nine, uh, I did a, I did a follow up study just, just because I had the opportunity, and, yeah. and we looked at compression garments to see what the oh, effects yeah. of compression garments were, and what we found was that the compression garments didn't change. Um, any of the physiological measures yeah. uh, in the muscle, but what what we found was that using the same sort of movement pattern, the elasticity of the compression garment actually reduced the error rate. Okay. So while the compression itself was negligible in terms of, of recovery time, yeah. what it did was it helped people move because it was able to get that that change of direction from a flexion and extension type movement back quicker, so yeah. less less. Uh, so, you know, I tell, sort of tell people, look, if you, if you had a, a fairly heavy eccentric session over the next few days and you're yeah. wanting to do some more exercise, you know, wear some compression garments and yeah. that'll, that'll help you out. Yeah. Um, and then the other other follow-up work with that is, is actually with a colleague in Perth, Ken Masaka, who's a world leader in, in um, DOMS and eccentric exercise. And, yeah. you know, what he, he's found, and it was purely by accident, really, was that if you do some preconditioning exercise, preconditioning isometric exercise, that can actually reduce the amount of DOMS from eccentric work. Yeah. So, you know, the other part of it too is if you have someone, I guess, new to a program, what we're trying yeah. to say is that rather than going straight into a, a fairly heavy program, for, sorry, heavy, heavy session straight up and, you know, really wiping them out, yeah. the first couple of sessions is just do a lot of, uh, static and isometric work yeah. before you start to get into any any sort of uh, isotonic movements um, to reduce that amount of DOMS because, as you know, as a PT, if someone's got DOMS, they, you know, they're probably thinking, oh, they're trying to kill me. I don't want yeah, to do that, right. you know. Yeah. So from a business 
perspective, it's probably good to to keep people coming back. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, reducing that amount of, of damage and, and soreness um, mm. is, is a good thing while while still improving their strength. Yeah, definitely as well. I think for like isometrics, I feel like that they programs now i feel like they're coming coming into a lot of programs at the moment with as i said with a lot of sport like people running walking just general i feel like that yeah there's a lot of people that are, are prescribing isometrics in their programs too yeah yeah absolutely it certainly has its um, benefits yeah definitely i think so as well <laughs> and as i said preventing injuries are probably a big thing for mm-hmm. people too so i definitely think it's um worth for them as well going yeah. back for the um, DOMS, how much testing did you do with people for it? Practical indication to um, the, test on many people? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we had, uh, it was two groups of, I think it was 12 in each group. Yeah. Uh, and I, it was, I mean, it was a killer of a study for an honours. Honours honors years are, are, are stressful in yeah. itself. But it was, you know, they only go from sort of February to October and, and you're yeah. trying to do almost a full study in like eight months and it's, it's an absolute killer, and, and I was stupid enough to actually do data collection up to 28 days post <laughs> in, in 24 people. You know, so I was, I was measuring them, um, obviously pre-measure, yeah. but then uh, two hours, six hours, one day, two days, seven days, yeah. 14 and 28 days. Jeez. So, yeah, so <laughs> it, was, it, was, yeah, it, was, it was pretty brutal. And yeah. I was I was absolutely shattered by the end of it, but you know it, it kind of it helped us, you know, uh, show the the um, the timeline of of DOMS as well, yeah. and and when it peaks, when it settles, um, the disparity between yeah. the biomarker of CK and the loss of strength and the recovery of strength. Um, it also showed changes with uh, force production versus neural yeah. drive. So yeah, it was really, it was a really nice you know nice study and and you know got a few papers out of it too. So uh, yeah, can't, can't complain. That's awesome. That's really interesting too. So listeners yeah. would definitely get a lot out of that as well. Yeah, awesome. The next one is obviously going back to concussion. Now, um, I suppose what sparked your interest in um, yeah. concussion? Yeah. So like I you know I said at the at the outset where I sort of got really interested in brain injury and and so when I finished my PhD in two thousand I yeah. came over to Melbourne for yep. his uh, bigger opportunities. Um, mm-hmm. Perth's a very small place. And yeah. um, and so, yeah, it was just, I guess, just more opportunities to, to try and do things. But even then, you know, I guess one of the things about medical science is that it's very territorial. Yeah. Uh, it's very hard to break into an area um, if you're not part of a research group. Um, and so for a number of years, I, I was trying to look at opportunities, but most of the time it was it was just um, looking at uh, just doing mainly teaching and, and a bit of research. And, and that's where some of the strength stuff came in, which we can talk about after. Yeah. Um, but it was about 2009 that I finally sort of uh, was able to talk to a colleague at Epworth. Epworth yep. Ho- sorry, start again. Epworth Hospital. Um, and he's a rehabilitation physician and, and he was looking at uh, moderate and severe brain injury and, and looking at rehab. So uh, he was he was trialling uh, using Botox yep. to inject into the muscle to reduce the spasticity. So if you've got spasticity, you, you inject Botox, it stops the acetylcholine release, mm-hmm. and then that weakens the muscle, but it actually in a positive way because it weakens the muscle, that can then allow physiotherapy to occur. 
and I was my my role was to try and measure the neuroplastic response as they recovered um, and then I guess during that time I, I switched universities and and uh, at that when I did switch unis one of the sort of the PhD students in the lab played football yep. and uh, and just said you know um, have you thought about concussions I said yeah absolutely I've seen some of the reports that are coming through from America but you know I've just got no one to, to yeah. try and approach and talk to and he said well you know I, I know a, a player manager who's really passionate about this yeah and I said yeah, no worries and and uh and I realized how passionate he was he's full on he's yeah. great but he's absolutely full on yeah. um but he was able to leverage for me um, a whole bunch of retired players. So yeah. uh, I guess for me, the, the the tipping point for me was when he started to you know bring in some of the biggest names that you've ever heard of mm-hmm. uh, coming in who were expressing concerns and no one was listening to them. So I used started using the same technique to, to measure their responses compared to age match controls. Um, but I guess the the, the, the thing that, that occurred with that is that he then alerted the media to it. And, yeah. uh, you know, so one of my first forays into national media was on Sunday night with Peter Fitzsimons where yeah. Greg Williams, uh, you know, basically came out with his ongoing issues. And, yeah. you know, that particular week after the Sunday night was aired, you know, I had 200 phone calls for, you know, um, uh, media requests for yeah. for interviews because this was the first time in Australia anyone was looking at it and yeah. then that kind of put me on a crash course against the AFL as well so yeah. things got us getting getting really bumpy there but um yeah. you know we published our first paper in 2014 showing um long-term changes in in AFL and amateur players as well yeah. uh then in 2017-18 followed up with a rugby league study showing long-term problems there yeah um, in between that have uh, shown, um, I guess, differences between symptoms and underlying physiology of the brain from concussions. So I did a, did a, a study with uh, the Hampton Rovers um, where we showed that uh, by, you know, five to seven days, their symptoms and, and cognitive uh, tests had all recovered, but by 10 days, the neurological response hadn't. Mm. Um, and since then, it's been sort of replicated around the world that it's probably longer. It's probably more like 30 days. So we've got a real issue here in terms of uh, how, how to address returning to play too soon. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and then the other part of it too is is what do we do in terms of rehab? How do we how do we address that? And what do we do? And and I don't, in my view, we haven't really researched that enough yet, despite yeah. people suggesting that they can do A, B, and C. Uh, we, we just don't have the strength of scientific evidence as yet and that's something that we desperately need to do and get research support and funding for. Yeah, do you think net like nowadays is it's much more in the AFL, like much more better as in like the concussion rules and things like that to look up um, players? Yeah, they certainly have uh, recognised the injury much more yeah. seriously than um, what, uh, you know, what they had previously. And, and in that, I guess you can only suggest that it's in the last five or six years that they've actually gone, yeah, we've got to implement our concussion protocols. Yeah. Uh, we've got to be more stringent. Um, and then this year they've, they've uh, suggested, um, you know, at least five days prior yeah. to a match uh, before um, uh, you can be cleared, whereas yeah. 
up to last year, you know, you could be cleared 24 hours before. So, you know, we, we've got to see the evidence on that and whether that's actually working or not because my, my concerns is that uh, when you start to in, put in too many, um, I guess, conditions of, of trying to, you know, protect you, yeah. players, coaches, whoever will try and go around it and, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that it doesn't mean that they're going to try and clear them super quick. Yeah. Rather than giving the, the due time to actually assess them. Yeah. So I guess that's something that we need to look at. Yeah. No, that's good. And both when like they do have concussion, those symptoms sometimes like I'm sure some players will come on straight away, but I suppose the other times others maybe that delayed route bit delayed kind of thing and then they're like, no, I'm fine to kind of go back on or things like yeah. that. Is that do you see that yeah. I suppose symptom wise as well? come on in the next couple of like maybe days or hours kind of thing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, this is, this is why it's such a complex injury is because some people can, can yeah. show very quickly, um, yeah. but then also, re- you know, recover very quickly too. So yeah. you have people who have, have, you know, their symptoms resolve in minutes. And yeah. then you have others, as you said, you know, with symptoms that might not come on for half an hour or a couple of hours after. Yeah. Um and then you have those who may not recover by 15 or 20 days. And then yeah. I've, I've tested people who've gone going symptoms for 12 to 15 months, two years. Yeah. After after one concussion, they yeah. have not recovered. So that's known as post, sorry, uh, yeah, post-concussion syndrome or persistent yeah. post-concussion symptoms. And, uh, you know, they just can't seem, just can't seem to recover. Um, yeah. So, it, you know, everyone seems to be individual in their response yeah. and there's, there's no strong evidence on where you get hit or how you get hit or um, within the concussion or mild traumatic brain injury level. We're not not talking about moderate or severe. Yeah. But there's there's all different ways. There seems to be um, your history. If you, if you've previously been concussed, it's easier to yeah. get another concussion and symptoms last longer. Your sex, if you're a female, you're more likely to get a concussion and it goes for longer and yeah. more severe. Um, children. And adolescents are worse than adults, yeah. you know, and, and so, yeah, it's, it's not a, not a, a simple box, yeah. you know, and, and you can't grade it like you can with a, with a, with a hamstring injury, yeah. for example, and then say, yep, you've got to be out for three weeks or four weeks or five weeks yeah. based on grade one, two or three. It's, yeah, yeah. it's much more complex and, and, you know, we, we, we still know very little about it. Yeah, no, it definitely makes it tough on the individual as well to, as I said, assess for you guys too. So, but yeah, there's some really interesting points here as well. Rose, what's the best way to recover after a concussion? Yeah. Um, well, I guess apart from the initial rest, just yeah. to just to see how things are like, and I'm talking about 24 hours, you know, what we're seeing now with the evidence is that it's exercise. Yep. So it's to get into some very light uh, aerobic-based exercise. Yep. Um, and the reason why we say aerobic is because we actually haven't tested any other types of exercise as yet. Yep. Um, and the main thing is really to, I guess, look at, uh, I guess, trying to stimulate the brain without stressing it. And yeah. so up until about 2017, the consensus was that you sat in a room and you, you know, you did nothing. You, you didn't look at any, any screens. You didn't do any, anything that would you know, cognitively stress, as they called it, yeah, or yeah. didn't exercise. And so what, what, but what was happening is that people, particularly athletes, and I'm not talking about elite athletes, any athletes, you know, yeah. at all levels, you know, would, would be told to 
have complete rest, you know, darkened room, do nothing. And what we were finding is that they were getting depressed. Yep. Because you just, you know, you, you, you're limiting the opportunities of, yeah, of right. doing anything. So people were getting depressed. And, and so what, what started coming through was, was this idea of, of doing some exercise. As long as it wasn't bringing on um, symptoms, yeah. then you could graduate the increase in exercise tolerance yep. uh, slowly. Um, as well as some cognitive stimulation as well. So a little bit of screen time or doing a little bit of reading or yeah. something like that, again, gradually increasing as without symptoms yeah. um, is the way to go. So, um, you know, exercise is certainly one of the things that I like to try and tell people to get into and, and, yeah. and get someone to help you through that as well. So uh, it's interesting because a lot of exercise physiologists actually didn't don't know that. And, and yeah. don't realize that. Um, and that, and that we actually have some exercise-based tests that can be done easily as well. Yeah. Um, so, you know, PTs working with exercise physiologists can certainly do that. Yeah. Um, and, and it, you know, for me, it's something like, well, here's, here's something that you can offer in your service. Yeah. Um, is because you, you know how to prescribe exercise. You know how to measure responses from exercise. Yeah, uh, and it's you know it's it's as simple as using a bulk scale. It's as simple as maybe even using a heart rate just to check heart rate variability. Yeah. Um, it's very simple just to even get just some some verbal feedback as well. Yeah. So um, it's something that that I like to try and tell everyone who's involved in in exercise, being you know PTs, exercise yeah. physiologists, exercise scientists, sports scientists, to try and implement that because we don't really have we're not really have taken it on and and um, you know. I'm surprised that we haven't really implemented here in Australia the Buffalo concussion exercise test, yeah. which is everywhere in North America and that, you know, came from the University of Buffalo. So yeah. um, it's a very simple, easy test to do and, and uh, you know, you can certainly use it to help, uh, you know, really prescribe very specific levels of exercise. Yeah. From that you can say, okay, Jane or John, you know, we want you to be working at, no more than 130 beats per minute. Yeah. I mean, best way to do it because so many people have come to my lab and said, oh, you know, I got told to do exercise, but I don't know how much exercise to do or how it fits. And I think, well, I need to go for a run and I go for a run and all of a sudden my headaches come on and I'm I'm cactus. Mm. I'm like, right, well, no one's told you how how hard. No, no, you know. So this is what we need to be doing at least for now. Perfect. Now, hopefully, like I said, hopefully they can bring that over to Australia here and we can get more like, idea. Well, it's, it's, it's available online. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm more than happy to send you yep. the protocol um, and then you can distribute it to, to your networks. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. That'd be good. I'll, I'll chuck, send it to me. I'll chuck in the show notes at the end of the podcast so um, people can check it out. That'd be awesome as well. Yep. Um, the next one with this one is a bit of the mental health aspect us on from, from the brain after concussion. I know a football player come out uh, you wanted, as it Sean Smith? No. Sean Smith. Yep. yep. I know he come out about saying about he had some struggles with it. I'm not sure, obviously from concussion, I'm guessing a bit of it. Yeah. Could you explain just a bit about, I suppose, the mental health aspect of after the concussion as well? Yeah. So we, we're seeing, particularly in, in older athletes, even yep. though at the moment it's all males, <laughs> yep. um, we haven't got to that point at the moment where we've got, women playing contact sports for long enough to see the long-term yeah. outcomes. And, and just on that note, I mean, 
you know, the first study on, on women only is, is being started in Boston at yep. Boston University. So that's how far we're behind in, in women. But so when I'm talking about athletes, it's at the moment all our evidence is in men. And what we're seeing is that, you know, males in their sort of middle age and older age uh, have who've had a history of, of, of concussions and also sub-concussive head injuries. So it's not just the concussion yeah. injury. It's just those, you know, repeated hits to the head that don't cause any symptoms. Um, and, and, you know, this could be in the tens of thousands we're talking about. It's the exposure. You know, I have been addressing concerns about depression, anxiety, mm-hmm. um, suicide ideation, yeah. um, as well as... as uh, Cognitive issues, uh, some have motor impairments. Mm-hmm. Um, that has taken almost twenty years to manifest. Yeah, and so we, we're we're not really sure why that is. Mm-hmm. We think that it's because, and you know, this still needs to be tested. Is that a lot of athletes when they finish yeah. don't continue doing anything that is stimulating? They, you know, they kind mm-hmm. of go into menial jobs yeah. if they're not really, you know. Mm-hmm stimulating their, their brain in terms of, of, of work. They don't do that much exercise because they're probably so exhausted from, yeah. you know, uh, we're not exhausted, but, you know, they're, they're so overdoing that structured, yeah. uh, intense exercise that, you know, this is a bit of freedom from them, you know. Yeah, so right. um, putting on weight as well doesn't help the brain. Um, and so, you know, we see a lot of mental health issues and, and um, I guess this is something that we're trying to address. And, again, we're we're hoping that we can take some lessons from the Alzheimer's um, research in trying to maintain social contacts, trying to maintain um, physical exercise, trying to maintain um, cognitive stimulation by doing more than just menial tasks and, and, and and trying to, you know, do some, learn a, learn a musical instrument. So for example, with Sean, you know, I sort of said, um, you know, have you ever enjoyed playing music? He goes, oh, you know, I'm, I used to play the guitar, as, yeah. you know, sort of suggested. Get back into that, start learning a guitar, you know, learning a musical instrument because that, yeah. that really stresses the brain. Yeah. You know, doing people think that doing sudokus and, and crosswords is is stimulating the brain. And if you've not done sudoku, if you've not done crosswords, yeah, it will. Yeah. But at some point it doesn't, it there's a ceiling effect. Yeah. So what I tell people is that you've got to you've got to have the passion for it to start with. But Learn a language if you really yeah. want to learn a language. Learn an instrument. Yeah. Uh, learn something that's actually going to make you think. Yeah. And, and you feel a bit sort of tired at the end, like, oh, geez, you know, that, that was hard work trying to, trying to get those chords, you know, and, yeah. and after an hour or so, you're like, oh, I need to make a break, you know. Yeah. <laughs> that's a sort of, it's, a, it's the same principles of, as physical exercise. You yeah. need to be able to, you know, stress the system to get some adaptation. And so we know with, with the principle of neuroplasticity is that you've got to stress the brain in order to get that adaptation going yeah. and some new connections, you know, um, from that. This doesn't mean that we're going to stop potentially, you know, Alzheimer's or yeah. CTE or Parkinson's, but what it will do, and this is what we've seen from the Alzheimer's research, is that it will give you quality of life for maybe even up to five years. And so rather than possibly getting Alzheimer's at 60, you might get it at 65 or 70. Yeah. And people will take that, you know, yes. until we until we can actually advance the science that we can possibly um, you know improve yeah. the outcome somehow. 
yeah. how that is. I don't know yet. That's, you know, um, yeah, that's that's really the holy grail at the moment in terms yeah. of neurology is, is trying to find prevention and cure for, you know, these neurological diseases. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Really good point to take out. And I think as I said, it's for anyone, as I said, not just like obviously for the trauma injuries, but biggest thing to, is look, look to look after your mental health as well. But yeah, I yeah. think, as I said, it's when you're saying about learning a new skill, intramarinate, then I think as I said, it's, it's like exercise when you do a new exercise or as learning to jump, land, whatever it is, run, walk. That's another yep. thing that, that's obviously going to take over the mm. brain that way too to obviously learn from there as well. So that's yeah. really good. That's right. I guess one other quick thing that we should mention too is that we're looking at nutritional interventions as well. So yeah. uh, doing some collaborative work with a professor at the tribe who's an ex-NRL player himself. Yeah. Um, we're, we're hoping to start probably in the new year now with because of COVID uh, is a clinical trial on high-dose omega-3. So okay, yeah. probably three to four times the dose that is currently recommended. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so rather than... 2,000 milligrams a day. We're hoping to probably do nine to 10,000 milligrams per day. And, and uh, the reason for that is because we're seeing that in animal studies that um, after brain injury, omega-3s, you know, particularly with DHA and EPA, uh, have, have some really good neuro-regenerative um, effects. So yeah. we'll see what goes on there. So hopefully, yeah, watch this space. Awesome, that'd be good. I know you probably get this question asked a fair lot as well. What are your thoughts on like helmets? Are they like protective? Or... Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look, there's no evidence for helmets protecting the brain from yeah. concussion. So, yeah. helmets. You know, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a cyclist. I wear a helmet because I know it's going to protect my skull. Yeah. But it doesn't protect my brain, and the reason for that is your brain sits in a sac of fluid called the cerebrospinal fluid. Not only is the cerebrospinal fluid useful for nutrition and metabolic exchange and all that, but there's a slight cushioning effect. And up for small bumps, that cushioning effect is, is helpful. You know, what I'm talking about is you knock your head against the, the door or yeah. something like that, or, or you know, even, even just the occasional ball that, that hits your head. Yeah, yeah it's not great, but it's, you know, it protects you. Yeah. But when, when you get big hits so you come off the bike or you are absolutely cleaned up on the football field the cerebrospinal fluid actually works against what it's what it had evolved to happen so the brain moves and in that sack of fluid it'll actually move much easier than if it was locked in Mm -hmm. so that cerebrospinal fluid will actually move the brain and that causes stretching and shearing of, of the brain cells or the neurons and so that that is what leads to a concussion. So a helmet doesn't stop that brain from moving. All it does is it protects the skull from from fracturing. Yeah. And so uh, that that you know the, any anything that's going to try and protect from concussion, there's yeah. there's no there's nothing at this stage. Even even mouth guards yeah. um, have very little effect. Um, but wear a mouth guard when you're playing football. <laughs> <laughs> Last one I just want to ask you: How do you keep yourself, I suppose, fit and active at the moment? Yeah, yeah. Well, as I said, I'm, I'm a I'm a cyclist. Yeah. Uh, I, I I ride as much as possible. Um, I do I do strength training as well. Um, it's probably secondary to cycling. Um, yeah. I've got a lot of chronic injuries, so you know, when I was a younger, I, I've dislocated both my knees. Um, I I have a grade three. Achilles tendon rupture when I was in my late 20s. And then about 10 years after that, I fractured my patella. 
doing some sprint training. Um, and now I've got two little bone islets sort of floating around the synovial joint. So the surgeon said to me, as long as you, it doesn't lodge in anywhere and lock your knee up, don't worry about it. Like, okay. But uh, for me, cycling's probably is good because it it takes a little bit of, of impact off my knees in particular. Um, but it, you know, there's a there's still a bit of resistance with that. You know, with changing of the gears, uh, yeah. particularly riding into a headwind. You know, that's that's resistance if anything. Yeah. Um, so yeah, look, that's what I normally do, and it gets me out as well. So yeah. particularly with COVID, you know, we only had one hour a day. Yeah. Um, now we've got unlimited, but uh, you know, at least you could still get out and get into the sun, you know, and fresh air as much as possible. So yeah, it, it certainly helped with with the mental health. That's for sure. Yeah, definitely. Thank you very much for your time today, Dr. Alan Pierce. I really appreciate it. That's all right. No worries. And, and more than happy for people to contact me through yeah. Insta or, uh, uh, or through, yeah, I can give you my email details as well if yeah. anyone has any questions. What's the best way for uh, people to keep uh, like updated for you? Yeah, look, uh, it's probably th- yeah, three ways. Uh, one is Instagram, two is Twitter, three is my website, neuropierce.com. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm more than happy to share my research papers if you need them. Um, any other research papers, I can send them out under, you know, educational, for educational purposes, if yeah. you need anything. Um, yeah, so, yeah, looking forward to hearing from people. Perfect, that's good. I'll chuck in the show notes at the end of the podcast, so guys, you'll be able to check that out as well. But today's been an incredible chat, and I really loved it, and I hope you guys will um, get a lot of value out of today's episode. So I know I have, so... Thanks for listening, guys, and I'll uh, see you in the next episode. Cheers.